What's up, everyone? We are back with another episode of The Crazy Ones. My co-host, Jesse, is out today. I think he's actually visiting his mom for her birthday. So happy birthday, Mrs. Pooji. Uh, and I get to chat with Anker Jane, who is a fascinating founder. His company, Built, went from zero to a $1.5 billion valuation in just over a year. And on this episode, we talk about a bunch of things. We talk about what his parents, who built multi-billion dollar companies, taught him as they were raising him. We talk about how Built took the airline loyalty programs that are literally worth tens of billions of dollars and how he wrapped this type of program around rent, which is basically everyone's biggest expense on a given month. We talk about the art of deal making and the skills that Anker uses to rub elbows with the famous and powerful like Bill Clinton and Richard Branson. And we talk about why Anker thinks that raising VC money should be an absolute last resort for entrepreneurs. Let's hop into it. What's up, everyone? I'm Alex Lieberman. Yo, this is Jesse Pucci. And this is The Crazy Ones. Anker Jane, thank you so much for joining the crazy ones. It's, uh, it's going to be picked as a crazy one. Yeah, exactly. I think last time I saw you, we had just um, hung out in um, like NoHo in the city and you tried to do the very courteous thing of, <laughs> of covering my Uber home and then we get in the car and the guy's like, yep, I'm sorry, I can't take you to Hoboken, which is just a classic response to anyone who lives in Hoboken. I, I honestly didn't even realize that the Uber drivers had the ability to reject rides like that. We get in the car, it was pouring rain. There was no cars. And I said, just have it take, I'm going west, have it drop you off after me. And the driver just threatened to get both of us kicked out of the car. Um, it, it is hilarious. We're going to have to move yeah. you back into the city. Yeah, no, it, it happens all the time. Uh, I would say five out of 10 rides of me going back to Hoboken in the city, I'll get into an Uber and they say they can't take me to Hoboken because I guess the economics don't work for the driver because the cost of the toll. They don't cover the toll as part of the ride. It, I would think they do, but like this is a common, it's 50% of drivers will not drive me back to Hoboken. So something about, how, about the time coming back or something that that's possible. Or yeah, it's maybe they, they can't get a paid ride back. So they have to do basically two drives for the, the one fare, whatever it is. Um, Hoboken is severely underrated. Uh, okay. So we, we've, uh, we've met in person a few times and, you know, I've been incredibly impressed by your story and just what you've built, but also I would say how down to earth you are and just like level-headed you are for what you have done. We're going to go through everything today from built to Kairos to all of your businesses, but I want to kind of start in the beginning because I feel like you are like the quintessential entrepreneur from a family of entrepreneurs talk about just like what your upbringing is like and was like and how long you've wanted to build businesses so funny i i've never been a build a business guy i've just been a things frustrate you how can you fix it guy and i think uh you know part of this is just i am i am the product and the child of the, the american dream story right and so i think one of the things you and i have talked about this like my parents, like many other entrepreneurs, immigrated to this country um, with nothing. And, you know, I think one of the things that I love so much about what's possible here in the United States, especially, it's, is you, know, you can have people like my dad who grew up dirt poor in a village in India, who really, I mean, no one in his family had ever been able to leave the country for 
who knows how many generations. And for him, I mean, he was studying on dirt floors in a classroom. It's that kind of thing. And the idea that someone could go from that to today, you know, having built, he's now built multi-billion dollar companies and owns a space exploration business here in the United States. Like that is the classic American dream, but it really instills, I mean, if that's possible for someone who's come from, from that upbringing, imagine what's possible for people like you and I who are lucky to be born in this country with the ability to access some of the education. And I think, you know, growing up, watching them go from nothing. At one point, it's funny. My parents, I remember when they first got, they've told me the story and they tell my brother and sister's story. When they first got married, they couldn't afford to go on a honeymoon, right? And so my dad was like a junior systems guy working at a computer company in California. And he was thinking, how in the world am I going to take my wife, my mom, right? on a honeymoon. And he goes, you know what? If I send my resume around the country, some company will probably fly me out for an interview and that'll be a chance. No way. So he sent his interview to all these companies and this little startup at the time in Seattle called Microsoft called him up for an interview. And he goes to my mom, he goes, guess what, honey? We're going for a honeymoon in Seattle. <laughs> that is insane. He goes, don't worry. We're not actually going to move or take a job or any of that, but they're going to pay for us to fly to Seattle. And so in you know mid eighties, he flew up to Seattle with my mom. And that's when he met, you know, the, the early folks at Microsoft, Bill and everybody. And, you know, they eventually made him an offer that to come on board. And he goes, well, I was just here for a honeymoon. guys." Uh, but it was that type of attitude and problem solving where you just figure stuff out. Um, and your mom's an entrepreneur also, right? They, they did everything together, right? I mean, and so, you know, it's funny, right? Like you can imagine though, you come from nothing. Then he finally got kind of his first little break where it wasn't like he was someone super senior at Microsoft, but it was a time in the 80s where people started to make a little bit of like their first income where you could, you know, he then bought their first house. They had me and we were kind of growing up in a suburb of a suburb. Do, do, do a honeymoon the non-scrappy way. <laughs> right, right. Well, you know, at least book economy. Flights, yeah. like that, you know, but I remember it, you know, when I was six and we, you know, we, you know, we were living, we had a house, we were doing our thing. And my dad came home one day and was like, you know what? I think I'm going to go try to do this on my own and start a company. And I remember still to this day, the argument that the fight, I mean, the stress to leave a stable job, to put everything at risk. At this point, my sister and I were born. There was two kids like to go out and try something on your own and risk going all the way back to nothing. I mean, it was really scary. Um, you know, I remember my dad had to, you know, sell uh, at one point one of the cars and we shared it and I used to, he used to drop us to school and then go to work. And, and, you know, it was a, uh, it was a challenge, but that decision led to him starting a company which grew into one of the largest dot-com technology companies uh, in the world, right? And I think that hustle and every day, my mom was with him at the office. After school, we would go in as a family. My sister and I would sit in the office. I would do my homework, play video games, and then sit in on meetings with the team, right? Like That's how you learn um, how to think about it. I love it. And I have to ask about this just because... Uh... I'm kind of, you had a great hook in the type of business he's doing now. What What's the deal with this space exploration business? Like, what what is he doing? <laughs> so we, uh, there's two different things that he's now working on. And it's, you know, I think one of the things that you'll meet my sister and myself and my mom, my little brother. And I think the one philosophy that we have is, you don't, you don't have to start a company trying to solve a problem. 
right? That should always be your starting point. And, you know, right now, uh, what he's been working on is how do we get things from, like, from you launch things into space, how do you now create that last mile solution to get us to the moon, right? And so yep. uh, it's really quite exciting. You've got, think of the, like the internet in the original days, right? You had point fiber laid under the ocean to get, you know, data from London to New York. That was the most complicated, most expensive part of building this global internet. But then once you get the internet data to New York, how do you get it to every household? Totally. It's called the last mile solution. And then once you do that, you can build apps and software and websites and all of that. And so in the space race, you have people like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and these who are building the kind of infrastructure, right? The rockets to get from Earth to orbit, which is the most expensive, most difficult part. Now, what we're doing with Moon Express is saying, how do you create the last mile solution to get, you know, whether it's satellites positioned or whether it's, you know, going to the moon and actually mining the moon for helium three or platinum and being able to bring it back and forth, you know, and it's all possible. It's all happening in the next five, 10 years, uh, which is quite exciting. Pretty wild. I can anticipate what you're going to say, but I think it's, it's really fascinating to think about you know, how long you've kind of just like grinded at not just built, but like just like solving problems. Like, I, I mean, for me, I know like you've been kind of grinding at this stuff since college. It may have even been before that. But something I always think about is how do parents parent the right way so that their kids aren't entitled? And you've you've spoken publicly, right, about the fact that, you, you know, you you just you come from background you have a family now where you have so much privilege you have so much opportunity how did your parents parent you such that you weren't complacent when you uh, you you didn't have to be doing what you're doing right now with built i mean it's funny right like i I've, I've shared this story i think with you over drinks but you know so i guess the the hustle if you will really started at like 10 11 when you know here i am getting into middle school and we still had this like immigrant Indian culture where, you know, anything for education, it didn't matter if they had money or not, they figured it out. But anything beyond that, like, good luck. (laughs) Good luck, right? And so I remember I was, uh, I was almost 11 years old, and I was in middle school, and I went to a small school, and I really, really wanted to get on the basketball team. I thought like, that is how I'm going to be cool. I'm going to get on the basketball team and meet people. And that's the game. And I like, I thought to myself, if I could just show the team that I could dunk the ball, I'm a skinny little Indian 11 year old, you know? And I was like, if I could just dunk the ball. And meanwhile, I'm like five, five at the time, you know, then they have to put me on the team. So I saw a TV ad, I remember, for these things called jump soles. And they were like plyometric workouts. I remember those. Yeah, yeah. Like help you with your vertical jump. <laughs> I went to my parents. I was like, guys, I need to buy these. And my dad looked at me because it's $110. Are you out of your mind? And I'm like, but dad. And meanwhile, keep in mind, you know, Infospace at the time is a $35 billion company. It's a $110 pair of shoes that I'm looking for. But it was just so no, funny. no, no. And I used to be like, well, then I'll just use my like my own money to go buy it. And my parents had this classic line. It was, sure, you can do that, but then you can also use your own money to pay for your tuition and your food <laughs> and everything else. So, you know, so at that point, you know, you have two options. You either say, well, I don't get it, or you got to get creative. And, you know, ironically, that is how 
what led me into the first company. And so on the side, I had been kind of like learning how to code and program because I thought it was interesting to learn. And I started seeing all these websites popping up with ads where people were making money on like banner ads. Remember, this is back in the day. Yeah, yeah. So I, I quickly coded up a website and I started calling the customer service line for the fitness company that made jump soles. And I don't know what I what they were thinking, putting me in touch with the CEO, but as, with my you know pre-puberty voice, I was like, hey, could you get me and put me on the phone with the CEO? My name's Encore and I run X website. It was a text message website I had built and I'd like to market jump soles. <laughs> so that is wild. After like four phone calls, I got transferred to the CEO of this company. And I remember pitching him. I said, I think your product would be great for other teenagers and middle schoolers like myself. And we can put your banner out on the website. And he goes, probably just being nice. Like, okay, well, what do you want? And I was like, all I would need is a, a pair of the jump soles to try out myself. And I'd be happy to put the ad all over my website. And uh, I love that. And I did. And that was the first kind of like first experience of actually building a product and a company to solve a problem, you know, in kind of a weird, funny way. It, it's interesting. I feel like whether or not it was stated, I feel like your parents partially just like, just built in this mentality of like, nothing's given, everything's earned. And there is somewhat of a scarcity mentality, even the even when scarcity was no longer true scarcity. And I almost feel like that perception, it forces creativity. 100%. Well, you have two choices, like I said, at any given time. And I think that is true with everything you see in startups as well. Like as you build your business, nothing ever goes according to plan. And I think it's yep. really fun. Everyone loves... I think one of the biggest problems with business school is it loves to tell people to set a business plan with objectives and goals. And like you have the second you start with that, you have set yourself up for failure. Have you ever read, written a business plan? <laughs> no, I mean, we write strategy docs and it yeah, changes. Of course. But I think the part that people don't realize is when you're starting a company, if you start with what is the problem you're solving, think of yep. it like the purpose. It's very hard to fail at solving the problem because it's just every failure is just another pivot. Right. And yep. so you might think, and you know, we'll talk about built in a second here, but like the the problem we wanted to solve has stayed the same since day one. The pathway to getting there has changed a hundred different times. Right. Yeah. And as you keep hitting those roadblocks, you hear the word pivot. I don't even like that word, right? Because you're not really, you're just finding another way to solve the same yeah. problem. Well, pivot kind of sometimes insinuates like a negative thing. But it actually is almost like an expected just change to accomplish the same thing in a different way. Well, the problem with the pivot concepts is, again, this is why, like, I'll tell you, the number one thing, if someone applies for a job with an HBS degree, it's probably the fastest track to <laughs> getting out the application line. Because they just train people, again, to set these business model opportunity goals instead of starting with the problem. And the challenge is you do have to pivot when you do that way because nine out of ten times your initial idea is wrong. Yeah. And if you don't have a North Star that you're continuing to work towards, you're trying to keep creating a new North Star every single time, totally. which is a pivot. And that's why it has a negative connotation, right? Well, I feel like I feel like this is going to be a good way to kind of actually pull through the chronology of your story, because I think to your point, like when you are very problem focused, it's kind of awesome because like your whole life has this through line of the problem. So talk about the problem that built is solving and when you first identified this problem and you knew you were passionate enough to kind of like get working at figuring out how to solve it. Yeah. I mean, look, the problem is super simple, which is rent, 
for you and I, and for most people in this country, is the single biggest expense. And you keep paying more and more in rent every year, and you get less and less. It's insane. There's no other category where you keep spending more and more and more and getting less and less and less. And the fact that you burn money on rent every single month and get no closer to home ownership, you don't build your credit, and you get nothing back for it is just insane. And the fact that we've all just accepted that as status quo. And so, you know, when I was thinking about this, it's like, as, as I was 27, 28. Uh, and how old are you today? I'm 33. Okay. So this was six years ago that you thought yes. about the problem? So prior to this, I was running, I was the head of product for Tinder. Uh, we built that in the largest dating app in the world and we sold it in 2017, uh, fully back to Match Group. And when I was leaving that, you know, the one problem, right, without knowing exactly what it was, they said, how is it possible that so many of us who are working hard, we did everything you're supposed to do, and my friends would take out the student loans, and we all graduated, and we all had the jobs, and we were working, and you still could barely afford rent. You could still barely afford health care and transportation, having, got, you know, if you're lucky enough to have a budget to travel even. It's just crazy, Right. And so after Tinder, I said, there's got to be a way to use new products, new technologies, new business models to take those big life expense categories and make it work for you instead of against you. Yep. Right. And that was the kind of early inkling of built. And so we said, God, if rent is the biggest expense, shouldn't it be the thing that has the biggest benefit to you? Right. Totally. Not just that you're paying for a roof, but you actually are investing in yourself. And so... That, you know, there was a hundred iterations of that, but where we are today through built for the first time, everybody in this country can pay rent. And just by paying rent on time every month, you earn points and miles that let you travel the world for free. You are to build your credit history with every on-time rent payment, which by the way, for most people in this country, including, including us, is a huge thing. The average person can increase their credit score by 60 points. Just by reporting the rent payments, right? And then what's even more exciting is we actually got the government, the regulators to work with us to allow your rental payment history to help you qualify for a mortgage and to use points for the first time ever as down payment assistance. So just by paying rent, you can now earn points and miles on your favorite airlines and hotels. You build your credit. And if you want, you now have a path to home ownership, right? Totally. Think like... It's just one of those ideas when you look back, you ask yourself, like, how is it ever not that way? <laughs> totally. Well, we're, we're, I mean, we're going to talk about it in a minute. Like <laughs> probably the answer for why it wasn't done that way is like, there's a lot of shit that goes into actually making it happen. But you were talking a second ago about just like everything has to be problem first. And when you think back to this idea of rent being the largest expense that most people have in their lives, if they don't own a place, yeah. like how, I guess. Do you remember, and I feel like when people remember their initial stories for businesses, at least for me, it's like, I don't even know if it's the actual story from when we started Morning Brew anymore because <laughs> I've told it so many times, but like, was was it a problem you were experiencing where you like, shit, like I pay a lot for rent and it just keeps getting more expensive. Like, were you talking with friends or did you go the other route and you were like, let me go down my credit card statement or whatever of like, what are the biggest expenses in my life? And then think to myself, how could it be better with these big expenses? Yeah. I mean, so it was actually, it actually came through first my experience with security deposits uh, when I was coming in. So I would move from California to New York and like California rents are expensive. New York was just like 
a totally different level. And I couldn't believe how much money it cost me to move into my first apartment here in New York. And at the time, the part that really annoyed me was the security deposit that we had to put down to move in. I mean, I remember telling my landlord, I was like, I have good credit. I've never like not paid a rent payment. You can, you're asking me for references on my past yep. landlords. Like you can check and you want me to put down thousands of dollars. What is it typically? Is it a rent. month? Is that yeah, what it is? It's one to two months of rent. Usually it's one month, right? But if you're paying like in New York City now, the average rent is $5,000 a month. So in addition to the $5,000, you are supposed to put another $5,000 into a security deposit that just sits in a bank account that, by the way, by law, the landlords can't use. So it's not like they're using it for working capital. Or it's yeah. just dead money. And I was thinking to myself, how is it possible that that's just something we all accept today and just say, fine, like, ask your friends, take a loan, ask your parents, find money. Like, it's insane. Totally. When you start to ask that dumb question of why, right? Everyone's like, well, of course you have to put a security deposit. Like what's going to protect the landlord? And they're just like, oh, okay. And then they move on. We were like, well, I don't understand, but, but, but for real, like why? Like how often is this actually a problem? And they're like, well, you know, like in one to 2% of cases, we have to keep the lit. I'm like, wait a second, I'm out. <laughs> so for one to 2%, everybody has to put down a month of savings to just sit in an empty bank account. And then you think to yourself, like if you rented a car, right? Like it hurts or they don't say to you, hey, Alex, thank you for renting your car. It's $20 a day, but we need you to put down $10,000 in cash just in case you get into an accident. Like no totally. one does that. They say, and by the way, it's $5 a day for insurance in case you get into an accident. Yep. You said, why can't that same model apply to security deposits? And so kind of the first project, company, problem, whatever you want to call it, that we worked on after I left Tinder was what became a company called Rhino. Um, and we spun that out as this first kind of incubator I was working at where it was like, why can't we just pay $5 a month to replace a security deposit with an insurance policy that protects the landlord and lets me save money? Um, totally. And by the way, fast forward today, you know, I don't run that company day to day anymore. We've, you know, my partner Parag is the CEO of the business, but you know, we've given back $2 billion to renters. <laughs> totally. And, okay. So you basically saw this problem. The problem didn't just start with rent. It was like, why are people putting these massive security deposits down that they can't invest? They can't use it as liquid capital right. that the landlord can't even use it. So it's literally just doing nothing. You basically are like, what if you just change, introduce a different business model that's already been used in other industries, which yep. was Rhino with insurance. What led you then to be like, oh, maybe there's another interesting way to provide benefits to renters and it's through these loyalty programs because it's, it's funny in another way, you're taking an existing business model and just applying it to a new category. hundred percent. Well, so that, it's funny you say that. So like if there's one, there's a couple of different lessons I've taken away, especially over the last five years. But one of them that I think is so important is the best product innovation. People love to use that phrase, think outside the box. Like, I hate that concept because thinking outside the box implies that you're just smarter than everybody else at that specific space. That is almost never what drives innovation. It's almost always that you just look at the same problem from a different box, right? And you say, wait a second, I've seen insurance work in this market. Why can't I solve this problem with that model? Yep. 
right? And that's exactly what happened with Bilt. So then we started saying, well, sure, security deposit's great, but that's a one-time thing. I'm paying rent every single month and I'm not getting any closer to home ownership. Like this is insane. And at the time, there was a guy, Barry Sternlicht, who started Starwood Group. He built all the hotels that you may know, like the Starwood preferred guests in the hotel chain. And he was a partner of ours at Rhino. And I was sitting with him and I said, how in the world, like, I, is there such a cool program that you built for hotels where every time you stay, you get something back and eventually it helps me get a free stay or travel free. But when I rent and pay thousands of dollars a month, there's nothing like that. Right. What was crazier was when he then explained to me that airlines and hotels, I know you did a show on this, make all their money on the loyalty program and their credit card programs, not on being an airline and a hotel, which was the most like holy moment. Oh, for, yeah. Like I couldn't believe when, it, when I heard, I always thought those were cost centers yep. for these businesses. Then I realized that Delta, United, and American that is only their businesses. Exist because they make money on loyalty programs. So you were like you were like a credit card points like nerd before you had that conversation. I I mean I had a credit card that earned rewards. I used points yeah. to travel like most people. Like I had I think a, a Sapphire card and an American Express. But you weren't card. like you weren't like a mini points guy who we both know no, like who no. was ma maximizing for all of these things. No, I mean I now that I know this I feel so like I can't believe I spent all those years not doing that, yeah. right? But uh, at the time, no, I was just, you know, I'd use it. I loved getting points. I loved using points for travel, but I didn't know how these businesses worked and I wasn't optimizing any of that stuff. And look, I think most people don't have the time to do that. It's so complicated, right? I want to talk about like built as a business, like not only what it offers to customers, but the business model, but you brought up loyalty programs, which was kind of yes. the jumping off point. And I think actually the most, the best foundational way for people to understand your business is to understand loyalty programs first. So can you yep. explain how loyalty programs work? And you can use the example of airlines and credit cards. So again, the funny, the funny secret again, is that airlines are really just loyalty programs and credit card programs that happen to lease airplanes. Right. And so if you take a business like United Airlines, they have their, their passenger consumer airline, they have their cargo airline, and they have the loyalty program and credit card program. What they've done is they've created a currency, miles, that has outsized value to the customer because of the ways you can use those miles and the gamification of those miles. Right. So the ability for you to now take those points and book free flights. Yep. Once people get hooked on earning miles, because every time you fly, the airline actually buys the miles from the loyalty program business, right? So that's a really important thing to know. The flying passenger company buys the miles from the loyalty program. The loyalty program issues it like, like a currency and sells it to the airline. What they realize is that it was such a big driver of consumer behavior that the banks who are looking to drive spend on their cards could actually use miles as a way to incentivize you to pick their credit card over others. And so they, all these airlines started partnering with banks and as now you and I use, use every day, as you earn points on your card, you can transfer them into miles and use that to book free flights. So when you use your credit card that transfers to, to United Airlines, for example, United Airlines is selling those points and essentially earning a percent of the spend on every dollar that you spend on that credit card. 
And so really their business is they have a large customer base of flyers and they are able to capture a percentage of spend across all categories for that customer base because of their loyalty and rewards program. Got it. So just to, to make sure that I understand this, I have my Chase Sapphire reserve card. Uh, Visa or Chase is paying the airlines who are part of their rewards or loyalty program for a shit ton of miles. And they're paying them for a shit ton of miles because Chase will then offer me the benefit of as I spend with their card, I can earn airline miles. And the reason that Chase or Visa is willing to do that is because they have seen that I am going to spend more with their card and I'm more likely to just open up a card with them in the first place because airline miles and the ability to get rewards to fly is such a valuable benefit. That's that's 99% correct. I think the, the one nuance I would just clarify is think of it as the way the money flows when you swipe your credit card at the merchants, the merchant is paying a transaction fee to accept the card. The networks and the banks then pass that fee back to the airlines in exchange for the miles. So it's essentially the airlines are earning the percent of your spend on all these different categories in exchange for the miles that you then get as a customer. Got it. So that's actually how the transfer of miles is happening. That's, that's right. Got it. Okay, so that's the foundation of how loyalty programs work. And by the way, I think we spoke about this, but like I wasn't aware of how big loyalty programs were. I think the first time I realized this is I was watching, there's a YouTube channel called Wendover Productions and they had created a YouTube video that was um, why airlines are banks. And I watched that video and I was like, holy shit. And they talked about it and how like during the pandemic, when a lot of these airlines needed relief funding, they had to reveal the size of their programs. And I can't remember what it was, but like United's program was like $25 billion. I think and, the, the smallest, like Delta is 30 something billion dollars. It's like, yeah, and by the way, a, the craziest part is the airlines, when you combine the card business and the, and the loyalty business with their airline business is worth less because the airline business loses so much money that the overall company is worth less than the actual loyalty program and bank business. I love it. Uh, We're going to talk about in a second now what that looks like within the context of Built, but first a word from our sponsors. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. So we talked about what loyalty programs look like at the foundational level. Now talk about, now that our listeners have an understanding of this business, yeah. what does that look like in the context of Built? So Built took, a, took, again, a model that we saw work in one space. I said, why can't we apply it to the space of housing, right? And so if you think about like the Marriott ecosystem, there's a ton of different hotel brands that they brought together under the one program so that you had enough scale and program kind of like volume, if you will, to make it valuable to the customer, right? Housing's a tricky one because 
you have essentially like a couple called you know, 20 or so large institutional owners and operators, and then a bunch of mid-size and regional players and a bunch of long-tail folks. And so to even get started in trying to make something work, you have to have access to bring together all of these big players and all these mid-size players and get them all to agree that they're going to work under one rewards brand and umbrella together. Now, if you've ever met folks in the real estate industry, the idea of asking for player X and player Y to work together was like <laughs> challenge number one, right? <laughs> and then you realize, okay, if I can get them together and let's say you get apartment buildings together, there's still 40 million people that live outside of these buildings. So how am I going to create it so that anybody can earn points on rent? And yeah. then it was, even if you could earn points on rent, it doesn't really matter unless you can use the points for something valuable. And so basically long story short, What I thought was a really simple idea has turned out to be the most complicated assembly of puzzle pieces that I've ever set out to do. And I think, candidly speaking, like if I had known just how hard it was going to be to pull, you wouldn't this have off, done the thing. I'm not sure I would have started it. Yeah, <laughs> it's totally. no ignorance, bliss kind of thing. Um, but you know, four years of just pounding the pavement, um, we've managed yeah. to launch you know the largest program in the space. I mean, you, you've told me a few stories about just like, you know, it, it reminds me of like Shawshank Redemption, like the, the old adage of like Andy Dufresne climbing through a mile of shit to get to the other side. Like that's, that's how I envision your journey with this. Like talk about just like who are the different players? So, you know, obviously I know it's like you have a tenant. So I live in an apartment building in Hoboken. I'm a tenant of this building. I believe Toll Brothers is the building. I don't know if that, yeah, they're the building. So there's tenant who's involved in this, who's getting the rewards for me spending my whatever it is each month on rent. Talk about what's in it for Toll Brothers, if they were to work with Build or any of these programs. And then who else is kind of in this equation that you had to get on board in order to make it work? Like I said, if it was so simple, I'd walk it through in 30 seconds. But what I can say, let's just start from the basics, right? For the customer, the problem, what do we want to solve? Like I said, always start with the problem and what are we trying to solve? I want to make it so that our generation of renters can get rewards for paying rent, can build their credit and create a path to home ownership. I'll just like, maybe I'll actually start with just like an example story of how annoyingly complex just even one of those Perfect. three things was. Because it's just, it'll just put some color around it all, right? So we had spent almost a year touring around the country, trying to pitch real estate owners, trying to pitch banks because to build a loyalty program, you need your own program, think of it as Delta Airlines, which for us would be a network of buildings. But you also want the credit card business so that you can earn on all the other spend categories. And like you can earn Delta miles when you fly Delta, but if you fly United, you can still use a Delta credit card to earn Delta miles on that United flight if you use that card. Yeah, so that basically on that, just for a second, you're yeah. just saying, I have a built card, like, you can have the program with this network of buildings for me to earn points on my rent. But like, if I use that card for dinners, for my Amazon charges, whatever, you want to be able to earn fees on that. In order to do that, you have to be in the credit card business, which means extending credit to people. You're not going to be a credit card company, which means you need to work with a credit card company. That's exactly right. You need to partner with a bank. There's that. And we also, unique to, unique to us, part of our strategy was, look, there are people who live in one of our 3 million apartments today, but there are a lot of people who don't. And if we, 
if for those people to have a solution, which is to use the built credit card, you can pay rent at any apartment building in the country without those 3% fees, right? That allows anybody to get the benefit of the rewards. So you can live in the building. You don't need any built credit card. You can just, just like when you fly Delta, you earn miles. You rent at these buildings, you earn points. You can get the card and earn even more points and everything else, including rent at any building, right? So that's, that's the product. But to make that happen, again, you need to get these different pieces. So after about a year of us starting this, this 2018 or 20, end of 2017, early 2018, we spent about a year uh, trying to get buildings on board. It was a slog. Nobody wanted to do it. And in the meantime, I've been pitching that this is a great thing for you to market to your residents because they'll get a path to homeownership because I just thought, how cool would it be to use your points, not just for travel, but to help you cover a down payment, right? Yep. About a year into it, our attorneys called us and said, hey, we were talking with our specialty guys and we have some concerning news. I go, what do you mean you have some concerning news? <laughs> and they go, well, we're not actually sure you're allowed to use rewards points for a down payment. And I go, what, what are you talking about? Of course you can. And we've been working on this for a year. You're telling me now that you might not be able to say, well, yeah, it turns out the regulations don't define rewards points as an eligible source of funds for a home mortgage, right? So we've been pitching for a year now and I'm just being told by my lawyers that I can't even do this. So we were so, I remember we sat down and I was like with the team and I was like, well, I don't know what to do. Do we just kill this part of the business, <laughs> which was so core to the problem we wanted to solve? Or do we just figure out how to change the rules? <laughs> yep. And so we embarked on this crazy mission to go see if we could change the regulations to allow for you to use points towards a down payment and to count rent payments to help you qualify. It took us 18 months. We had three White House cabinet members at some point engaged. It required trips to Riyadh, Dubai, New York, Washington, D.C., Chicago, L.A., San Francisco, meeting with every housing authority. I was chasing down government officials at conferences in the Middle East just to try to get a meeting with these guys. And after all this time, after being told by the Secretary of Housing and everything, they believed in what we were trying to do and to write a letter to formally request approval from FHA, which regulates kind of affordable mortgages and FHFA, to send the letter and that we should be good to go to get approval. Now, just it's for your knowledge, absolutely wild. elected officials and there's appointed kind of or like career regulators, right? There's a little bit of a wall. So we sent the letter in to the career regulators explaining why we believe this is good for Americans, how this will help people, et cetera. I expected an approval. So here I am sitting in Chicago, convinced we're good to go, and getting ready for one of my biggest pitch meetings to this real estate company, Equity Residential. They're a huge apartment owner. Sam Zell, right? Yep. And I was ready to pitch him on this really exciting idea of how we can use points to help people on a path to home ownership just by paying rent. I get an email at like 8 p.m. from HUD and they go, we are sorry to say that your request is declined. Okay. <laughs> we are not able to approve your use of points at this time. I know you felt this feeling as an entrepreneur, that feeling where it just like your stomach sinks. <laughs> yep. Um, that was that moment for you. <laughs> and I just like panicked. I mean, at this point it had been 12, 
months plus the 18 months. I mean, it was like now we were at mid 2019 towards the end of 2019. And I remember I was like, well, it's gotta be. A, so I start calling everyone in Washington DC at 8 PM. Like somebody, please, can I get a meeting with these folks? Like, I think there's a misunderstanding. They must like, there has to be a misunderstanding at 9 PM. I get a phone call from a 202 number. Mr. Jane, uh, we received information that you'd like to set up a meeting. We're booked for the next few months, but we did have a cancellation tomorrow morning. If you could come in and meet with the woman who, who runs this team. I was like, absolutely. I'm there. <laughs> next morning I get to DC and I'm sitting in a room with five people and they look at me like, who is this tech guy that wants to do this? Yep. Like, you know, I'll put it this way. Silicon Valley has not done itself any favors in building goodwill and trust with the regulators. And they, I remember one of the women said, she goes, I've been here since before you were born, honey, with, you know, Bush <laughs> Sr., Clinton, Bush Jr., Obama. Like, she's like, you know, we'll hear you out. But just so you know, we've been around the block. And I said, okay, okay, I promise. I just, it's a great I'm start. <laughs> Thank you so much. I just really – and we explained to them what we were trying to do and why we were trying to do it. And I remember, you know, one of the women in the room – she looked at me and she started crying and she said, you know, my husband just passed. He had a ton of these credit card points. And if he could have used it for something like this, my son might've been the first time home buyer uh, in our family. And she goes, let us go back and talk to some folks and look into this. And um, later that day, I got an updated letter from HUD that said, dear Mr. Jane, you're, you're pleased to inform that your use case requested is approved. And that was that. It's insane. That is crazy. <laughs> now, what we haven't talked about yet, we've been burying the lead a little bit, is like you've, you've weathered just like all of this, just, just like all of these hurdles to make this business happen. And I would say the last, I don't know, year and a half of the business has been absolutely ridiculous. Like, <laughs> the, the, I don't know if there's any other way to describe it, right? Like you went... It probably, you went from in a year going from basically your, let's call it like base product because you had been building at it for a long time to your last round raising at a $1.5 billion valuation. I don't know if you talk about it publicly, but like the, the rapid increase in just yeah. credit card, like rental spend on your bill cards is absurd. Yeah, like, I mean, it's, and it's know. not just, it's, it's it's been really crazy. I mean, we, they say behind every overnight success was years and years yep. of hard work. Right. And, but when we launched, there was the reception from everyone who pays rent that said, wait a second, I can actually get something back on my rent payments. Totally. I can earn airline miles and hotels just by paying rent. Uh, we've gone in just that 12 months to processing over five billion dollars of rent annually alone. You're just, you're at such a unique time right now where I feel like there's so many valuable questions to ask you about a hyper growth business. So, yeah. you know, the, the first one is just talk about how you lead, like what, like how do you run your business? And you can take that question however you want. And yeah. also how do you not get behind when my visual of you running your business is like, you've been put on like the world's fastest strongest Bronco and you're holding on to the reins, just trying not to get whipped off of the thing. Like how do you stay on top of the business when it's moving so fast? I mean, the number one thing, which sounds so obvious, but people don't do it is focus. 
right? And you know, one of my favorite lines is, "Great companies die from indigestion, not starvation." Right? Yep. They take on too much. They say yes to too many things, and they forget what their core business is. And I think one of the reasons, to be clear, why built works is number one: you have to have the right product market fit. Right? Does your product actually solve a problem at scale where there's enough people who care enough about the problem you're solving, right, to want it? Two, and, and by the way, investors tend to be pretty good at asking that question today. Two is, does it have good unit economics to make it sustainable, right, where you're not relying on hoping that if this works, then you can make money on that. And, you know, those businesses are very hard to scale, right? Yep. And I'd say investors are somewhat good at asking that question, depending on the time of the market cycle you're in. And then the third thing, which people don't ask, which is the most important part to building a great business that can scale this quickly, is do you have actual distribution that can scale? Because what happens and what kills so many companies that they enter hypergrowth is now they have to keep up their growth trajectory month over month over month, but they never built a model for distribution that can scale with the business. And so they're starting to now freak out about how to keep sustained growth. And they start spending money irresponsibly and throwing things at the wall. And inevitably you start building a business that's a house of cards to collapse. I think one of the coolest things that we had with this, this kind of perfect storm it built, everybody wants points on rent, right? We have unit economics that are profitable from day one, right? So we can make money and not need capital. We have apartment buildings that are the distribution channel across the country. And that allows me to scale. There are 43 million rental households just in the United States, much less any other part of the world. And we've only launched 600,000 of those to date, right? So the amount of room left to scale with doing nothing new even, but just executing is massive. And I think yeah. a huge part of my job is keeping us laser focused and diversifying risk from black swan events so that whether it's an SVB type incident or something else, how do you make sure that your business is robust and diversified um, so that you can scale through that growth phase and then focus on the next business? And by the way, Google is one of my favorite case studies in that. When they nailed search and AdWords and they got it right, they now have the freedom and the flexibility to go launching hundreds of other products and businesses. But if they tried to do that too early, Google would never have been Google. Totally. You talked about how the unit, unit economics work for Built. How yep. much have you raised to date? We've raised, we just did a $150 million round. Before that, okay. we've done $40 million. But the business has been profitable. Totally. Um, so, totally. so that's so what I'm getting to. Let's just say you've raised around $200 million, like in that vicinity. Yep. Why raise money? Why have VCs breathing down your neck when you had the freedom to control your destiny exactly how you wanted to? To be clear, we didn't allow a single VC into this company uh, up until actually just a little bit recently. Um, I, I think entrepreneurs should do everything in their power to not allow venture capitalists to come into their business. VCs don't generally understand how to run a business. They generally don't understand what your business needs are and their incentives are not necessarily aligned, especially in the early days, right? I think as you get later stage, it's a little bit different as you prepare for IPO type markets. For us, we asked a really simple question. Who are the most important stakeholders for us? It's the consumers and it's our real estate partners and it's the banks. 
So we went out and the reason we raised money was to create aligned long-term incentives with all of our partners. And so all of the money we raised was from real estate owners, the banks that we work with, Wells Fargo, MasterCard, the payment networks, and that was it. <laughs> so in some and ways, I I look at it and maybe tell me if you look at it differently. It's like yeah. some ways I just think look of it at, look at it as like a a high stakes biz dev strategy, which is just like it, it's just like if you want the biggest real estate owners uh, or landlords in the country to want to work with Built, there's no better way than for them to own part of Built. Totally. I mean, look the the what's the dirty little secret of most businesses is it's a complex map of stakeholders, right? Built happens to be a lot of stakeholders, but every business has that map, right? Yep. And you are just constantly trying to create the best win-win-win. A win for your customer, the consumer, a win for your partners, your distribution channel, a win for your kind of revenue generators. And the, what better way to create win-win-win alignment incentives than bringing in those stakeholders as equity partners, right? Totally. I mean, everything at that point, your wins are their wins. You, you talked about uh, focus and selfishly, I'm just curious uh, about how you spend your time. Like look at your week this week. How, how would you say if you had a pie chart of that showed the different ways you could spend your time from yep. managing to strategy, whatever, you know, all the buckets, how are you yep. allocating it right now? So I, I happen to be, I think there's like two different types of CEOs. I am very much of the like, get my hands dirty really in the weeds and actually build and create. So the way we've organized the company, we have essentially different business teams, if you will, that own different parts of the company, right? Whether it's the loyalty team that owns the rewards and benefits part of the product, whether it's our marketing team that owns our acquisition and brand, or our growth team that works with our Belt Alliance real estate partners. I spend very little of my time managing people because we have such rock stars that lead each of these teams. What I do is at any given day or any given week, what are the three most urgent fires or priorities? And I spend my time going deep and actually executing and solving those. So it's like right now we are rolling out a payment solution for every apartment building to collect all rent payments through Built. So whether you pay by check or ACH or credit card or the Built card, we collect 100% of payments. That is my number one priority because that is our long-term distribution advantage over anybody else ever entering the market. So that is like number one. And I spend a good amount of my time personally on phone calls and in meetings with every real estate team, whether it's with their accounting teams, their technology teams, their business teams, making sure that that is going smoothly whenever there's an issue. And you can see that same thing across the board. Whenever there is a, at any given week, you have to know the top three most urgent fires or priorities. And that's candidly what I spend my time on. And then I lean on my leadership team to make sure that the ongoing operations continue to move and operate. In the last few minutes we have, I want to yeah. I want to touch on your other businesses, but I want to touch on them by actually asking about things that I th find remarkable about you. Like if I was, it's funny, in some ways you probably when you think about your competencies, like I'm sure some of the things up there is just like product leadership, but like I actually like, and you, I feel like this is something that has been talked about with respect to your work for a long time. But like, I think of you as just like an exceptional s storyteller, like seller, uh, as well as networker. 
ever since I would say like Kairos or even before that, it's funny. I was looking at a 2017 article from Wired. Do you know the one I'm talking about where it says Anchor Jane is Silicon Valley's rising power broker. And then like you ended up uh, winning some award that was like <laughs> the most connected 21 year old in the world. All kidding aside, like how, what are specific things that you've done? Like, or just like, what is your always on mentality for just be having kind of the ear of some of the most powerful people in the world? I know it sounds so silly, but I love to learn and I'm so interested in different problem spaces. Like I have, I'm that nerdy kid who spent the last, like last weekend, I spent six hours using ChatGPT to learn about DNA computing through ChatGPT and how it compares to artificial intelligence. And I'm just like a weird nerd and I love this type of stuff, right? And so the irony is like my inherent curiosity to learn about this stuff has led me to meet a lot of these interesting people. And I think it's just the fact that we, they see me genuinely sharing and something they're passionate about on top of the fact that I then have a platform for them to plug into that allows me to support their work. Right. And I yep. think it's like with you, with morning brew, like you get to learn about the coolest things every single day, but you also have a platform for folks like me to get support the work I'm doing by talking with you. Right. Yep. And I think that combination has just been an incredible way that I've gotten a chance to meet some of the most incredibly intelligent and smart folks like yourself through my business. And, and so this probably goes hand in hand, but like, I think another key part of what has made Built Successful is not only you having the network, but you also having, let's call it like the deal making or, or sales skills to be able to get people not just to the table, right? Like the networking right. piece gets people to the table, but then it's like, once they're at the table, getting them yeah. to keep nodding their head until they say yes <laughs> to the thing you want them to do. What are your like, most important few things that you have found to be winning parts of how you sell people? Doing a deal, right? At any given time is a combination of being smart about deal structure and being persistent as fuck. Like that's kind of it, right? <laughs> and so on the top side, I will say like, you see this classic mistake all the time where people think they need to keep their cards close to their chest and like play it coy. Like that is the worst way to do a deal. Because the truth is that 99% of the time, there are two or three things that matter to you. There are two to three things that really matter to the other party. And you will spend months dancing around it where you're getting a no on something, but really they're just concerned about something else. And so the faster you can just build the trust to say, look, here's what I care about and what I'm trying to achieve. What are the things that you care about or you're worried about? Do they actually, are they actually in conflict? And again, the vast majority of times, only one of the three things is the actual conflict point. Yep. And you negotiate on that. And when you solve that, everything else falls into place. Totally. Right. But people spend so much time playing it too close. Right. And so I'd say number one is build the trust, get those three points out on the table so you can hammer it out. And then it's just persistence. Like people don't like to do things, they don't like change, they don't like to take on risk. And especially at big companies, people don't want to put their neck on the line. Right. They're not do you have, rewarded. Do, do you have any examples of that? Like, do you have any examples of like basically whether it was with landlords or whether it was just like with anyone where there was something very clearly they didn't want to give on and you were able to structure things in a way where you were able to do a deal with them? Yeah. I mean, it, it honestly happens with with all of these things, right? And even you look at like, 
even how we worked with Wells Fargo. I mean, if you just talked to them at the earliest days about this model, it was a scary concept, a new category and all these other things. But if you actually just took a step back and say, wait a second, like, what are you actually worried about? What's your concern? And what do you actually care about? You find that like all of this stuff, all of the like usual, we don't launch new programs, we have our established programs, et cetera, was irrelevant if you took a step back and said, it's not about the credit card partnership. It's about acquiring a next generation base of banking customers for Wells Fargo. Totally. And like we spent so much time in the first six months talking about a credit card program with them, which was like totally the wrong conversation. You should have just been talking about who the customer is. That's it. And we just, and again, we were butting heads on the wrong thing. And when I said, what is, why are you even talking to me in the first place? Right. And they said, well, because we think you have access to really interesting, young, affluent customers that could be good customers. So why don't we just focus on that? Right. Because we're actually aligned there on the value prop. Last question for you, and then we'll let you go, is we do this startup AMA every uh, TCO episode where we collect questions from entrepreneurs that listen to the show and then talk about them. There's uh, a listener who who asked, basically their question was, as a non-technical founder of a software-based business, how do I succeed? How do I remove my blind spots? How do I hire the right technical people? How do you think about this? I think you'd be really just good at asking questions. This is a common misnomer. Most of technology and coding is just logic. By definition, code is a logical structured system. Yep. And so asking questions and not accepting the, it just takes three weeks or it's not possible or the systems don't allow you to do like the number of times you've seen engineering teams across any company use like that as an excuse for not doing something. Like just ask the question, well, what would it take? to make that happen? Or what if you just did it this way or that way, right? Totally. Um, I think I think non-technical founders oftentimes are afraid of pushing totally. harder because they're like, maybe if I was an engineer, I wouldn't right. be pushing hard because I would know what's a realistic timeline. Yeah. And that's, that's complete crap. I mean, like, <laughs> and again, asking the questions is half of it, right? Like, and what's amazing is even if you have the best engineering team who wants to win with you, Sometimes the mistake is they get hung up on something you said as a product requirement that adds a ton of complexity to it. When in reality, it was a thing you didn't even care about, right? Like you were like, I'll give you a stupid example. We had this portal for our landlords to manage payments. And I was flipping out about how long it was taking to make it performant because it was so slow to load. And my engine team said, it's going to be a month long project for us to rebuild our architecture to make this thing perform. I go, but why? Like, what is it about loading the stupid list of numbers? And the guy finally kept asking and kept asking the dumb question. He finally said, well, well, like this piece that you had on the bottom of your product design, which said the number of pages of payments, we have to load everything, cache it and calculate the page numbers. And I said, so why not just get rid of that? And he goes, oh, but that was part of the product spec. And I go, if I got rid of it, would it help? He goes, oh, I could have it live this afternoon. It's wild. And it's amazing, like these simple things, but you just have to know to ask the why, right? And I think, uh, look, that's the story. One takeaway for this whole podcast, everything that I've been able to do is say, there's a problem I want to solve and just asking the stupid question of why and not take it for granted. Whether it's why do I have to put down money for security deposit? Why can't I get something back on rent? 
Why can't you just use the credit card for rent? Why can't I use points and miles to buy a home, right? And, you know, that has been the key. And I think if you're just a little less scared to ask the dumb questions, you can get a I lot love of shit it. done. Uncle Jane, thank you so much for joining the crazy ones uh, and congrats on the business. Thanks again, Alex. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard.